gentlemen, welcome to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life, the only philosophy podcast that uh, promises frequent and continuous ruination. Uh, I'm Brian Cook, and with me in the studio is Dr. Helen Johnson. Uh, Helen is an artist and writer. She is a lecturer at Monash University School of Art, Design, and Architecture. Um, She's recently uh, exhibited in Glasgow and Los Angeles, uh, her large um, and very successful exhibition on Barren Field uh, in Glasgow, which we'll talk about uh, in 2015. Uh, she exhibited, uh, she gave an exhibition called Slow Learners at Chateau Chateau in Los Angeles. Um, uh, Helen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, you, uh, it's a it's a delight, Helen. And today we're uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things. There's so much I want to ask you about painting, about criticism, about Kant and philosophy. Um, but I suppose well, I wanted to center the discussion around your uh, your book. Uh, painting is a critical form uh, based on your your doctoral thesis. But before we do that, uh, you know what the traditional first question is, uh, Helen Johnson. How did philosophy ruin your life? Well, I think in order to answer this question, I have to use a quite specific definition of life, and I guess I mean it in a quite quotidian sense. Excellent, yeah. Um, And so to to digress a little bit, um, when I was in uh, second year uni and everyone was reading the poetics of space and making work that kind of illustrated the concepts that they most liked from that book. I made a conscious decision to stop reading any theory at all um, in order to better learn how to make art that addressed the world as I experienced it, um, which led to a, a hiatus pretty much from reading theory for, for, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years. Can I ask what what prompted you to to go on that hiatus? Um, I think I just, I mean, it it wasn't like I, you know, would see a theory book and be like, I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to do the theory. (laughs) Um, Like, I I just sort of started reading other things, I guess. Mm. During my early 20s, I was more into reading things like science fiction and, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, just wandering over a whole range of different things. Right. Um, but I never read the philosophical canon, I suppose. Mm. Um, so, like, full disclosure, you know, I feel like a fraud being invited to be on this show. Never. On, on, a, a <laughs> on, a, on, on the contrary, very far from it, um, as, as you will see, audience, yes. Um, so, anyway, then I... When I was... Um, when I'd been out of the institution and practising as an artist for about six or seven years, I decided to go back into the university and do postgraduate study and decided it was time to sort of re-engage theory in relation to my work. Mm. Um, and that led me to read reading Kant um, and to thinking about aesthetic experience in relation to my painting practice and about midway through my PhD I made a decision to do away with the way I'd been painting which was very flat and quite illustrative Hmm. still large scale and to develop a much more material kind of slippery language using the materiality of paint um, 
which made my supervisors very nervous. <laughs> um, but I, I nonetheless decided to follow through with that. And it's, it's led to shifts in my work that has, has led to this snowballing in terms of like an art career that's meant that I spend almost all of my time in the studio. So in the sense of life as a daily practice, it's ruined my ability to do things like pull weeds out of my garden <laughs> or clean the floor. <laughs> um, I could go on. Um, so I guess that's my answer to that question. Hmm. So you moved away from theory at some point because you were, were you concerned that it would... Uh, excessively inflect your practice but I guess I mean I was quite young and petulant at sure, stage. sure I was probably 19 or something yeah. um, and I think I I was just like receiving a lot of um, a, a lot of positions uh, like around me at that time that were saying you know art should be based in theory and there were a lot of yes. people at art school who would read Deleuze and Guattari, which was, like, the thing at that time, mm, to, like, read mm. Thousand Plateaus. Oh, yeah. Um, and then make work about it. And I felt like it it became a sort of navel-gazing in the specific context that I was in, mm. in a way that I, that I just didn't want to make art that was such a kind of um, hermetic system. Yes, that I mean that makes sense to me. I've I've met and perhaps we can talk about this at some stage, but a lot of any artist I've met has a an ambivalent or um or a history an ambivalent relation to or history of ambivalence to to what they tend to call theory and I think mm. it's it's got something to do with this the way it's positioned as a kind of legitimation discourse, but I can mm. certainly see why you would um turn away from that uh and again, I've heard lots of artists say this, that, you know, it's at its worst where art becomes like um, a, a... I have this terrible analogy for it. Like when I, was a, when I was a young person, they used to have... I assume they still do game shows on, on television and they used to, like, they get a girl in a sparkly costume whose job was to point to a car. Mm-hmm. And I used to feel that there's some kind of works of, <laughs> like, the way... Uh, art is positioned in those kind of contexts it makes it into the kind of girl in art, the artwork is the girl in sparkly costume and, and gesturing and gesturing towards <laughs> Deleuze and Guattari like gesturing yeah, towards it and you sort of totally. think what's the point of that like like there's no kind of re- real relationship between art and theory yeah I think of it kind of like another TV analogy like a, the sound bites you might see on like Channel 7 News or right. something that it's taking an like opportunistically kind of appropriating tiny fragments Perfect. in the service of whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> yeah, 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 whatever, whatever that may be. And, <laughs> and yeah, it seems to do a disservice to both to both philosophy and art. And yet, I mean, as your initial story suggests, and, and certainly as your work, as your book does, and there can be a very powerful um, relationship between philosophy and art that isn't mm. just this mechanical kind of deference to... to a sort of legitimation discourse and so what interests me is what after understandably having left this behind what in your practice brought you back to philosophy and specifically to to Kant how did you how did you come back to Kant um well 
I guess I've I felt like it would benefit my practice to to examine it through a theoretical lens mm. having practiced outside of any kind of academic context for for several years and established a career um, and I guess I was more confident in in holding my own at that point whereas when yes. I was younger at art school I was very um, impressionable still mm. you know and, and still uncertain what kind of artist I wanted to be yes um, so I guess by the time I was ready to return to that I was I had well and truly done away with the idea of theory as content in the work yes and it's more about theory informing a mode of practice yes um, in terms of Kant um, concurrent to my studies I was participating in um, in a a briefly run free school that was run by Olivia Barrett, um, hmm. Nick Mangan and Jared Rawlins, who are all art world luminaries. Um, and one of the lessons was a lesson on Kant by Justin Clements, who that get, guy. has now it's always turning up. Obligatory <laughs> mention. <laughs> and I, I, I promised him I would mention him. I thought it wouldn't be right since he's my partner. That I would be the, the one person not to um, mention him in the podcast. Um, yeah, I, I knew Justin before then, but um, but that lesson of the free school was was the first time I'd encountered Kant, and the nuances of the relation between well I guess the relations that operate within aesthetic experience were really compelling to me and mm-hmm. they kind of gobbled up my project yes in in quite a quick way and I mean I'd gone into my postgrad study with a topic about ideology and the image hmm. and I and that kind of corresponded more to my the work I was doing before and then I got to a point and went this isn't really about the image. No. And then got to a point and it's like, what's ideology? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, the, one of the things that I think is is remarkable about the book, that I'll talk to, I mean, yeah, you're, you probably won't like the, the compliment, but actually I think, you know, your disavowals of, of um, being a philosopher notwithstanding is like, I, I think it... Uh, Contains one of the most nuanced readings of the critique of judgment that I've that I've ever seen, and I think um, the ability to come up with this reading is very much tied to the fact that it is emerging. Your engagement with Kant is actually emerging from practice, from aesthetic practice, and from a series of questions around yeah. painting. But um, and and I think for this reason, it's very fortunate that you gave up your. Um, original thesis topic, especially because the yeah. book seems to me to um, uh, to throw into relief uh, a number of, I, I suppose you could say, um, banal aesthetic postures around questions of ideology and the image. That there's a kind of yeah. um, art as ideology critique notion that I think you kind of um, take a, a very 
uh, important distance from. Like one of the things we'll talk about is 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 certainly you're interested in politics. The relationship between art and politics is central. But I think it seems to me that one of the things Kant does for you is to allow you to be quite firm about rejecting the idea that that art can be political in itself as if it as if it can be a, yeah. a substitute for is that a fair I definitely agree with that I've always mm. felt that mm. um, which is not to say that it is irrelevant to politics or not concerned with politics no or, but mm. that it can it can take a reflective position in relation to politics I yes. think and I don't speak for every artist I think there no, are sure. some artists whose works are immersed in politics in a way that I'm that mine would never be, like mm. Hans Harker, for instance. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, as a painter, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, provoking discussion around political issues in some instances, but I would never kind of approach a painting thinking that it's going to have an influence no, no. In a political sense. Yeah, yeah. it seems you always renounce the potential, um, you know, convenient narcissism of that sort of idea. It's not a, it's not a refusal of engagement. It's not a refusal to um, uh, continue to sort of use art to ask political questions and so forth. But you refuse that kind of apologetic gesture by which you say no the act of my painting is already like you know as if one looks at your painting and at the end you know the detention centers open and so forth yeah, like as a sheer. exactly <laughs> I mean I mean I guess you know perhaps we'll talk about this more later but that was um one of the main reasons I was particularly interested in Martin Kippenberger's work mm, and, mm. and the Cologne School in general which included people like Rosemary Trockel and Albert Berlin as well um that those artists, in the context of the Vergangenheitsbewältigung mm. in Germany, were deliberately making a decision to respond to a very fixed state narrative with ambiguity as a means of refusing to accept that, that line of, of sweeping the past under the carpet. Yes, this is a, a project of... Uh, the GDR of West Germany in the 1980s, you talk about it, setting... Uh, to wrestle with, as the word implies, or deal with its past, but de facto this ending up as a as a sweeping on the past under the rug, and and these artists, Kippenberger is the one you talk about most in the in the book, finding a way to um, to engage with that. Yeah, as we'll, we'll see, I'll talk to you through ways that are neither. That are, that are clearly political insofar as they're engaged with a, a state narrative mm. and so forth. And yet, yeah, I mean, we'll talk... Yeah, you, you they, they don't espouse their own position. No, they, precisely. They sling that position back to itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, the, the, the ways you talk about this in the book are, are fascinating. I, I, I definitely want to explore this in our conversation. But let's take a step back for the moment to the very beginning of the book. I, I want to, because we've, we've talked about um, how you came to Kant, I'd like to ask you um, first just about, about the, the title of the work, Painting is a critical form and, and how you came to that that type because it seems to me that uh, a lot of the book is, is is as I suppose you'd expect from a title contained within that particularly the the dual sense of of criticism which evokes both I suppose the the quotidian 
sense of, of criticism as, as um, judgment, you know, coming from the word uh, to judge in, in Greek, um, uh, criticism as something that we might think of as both necessary and kind of supererogatory to art, a kind of supplement to art, but also criticism in the, in the Kantian sense. And it, it seems to me that your title brings both of those notions together, Kantian critique and, and criticism as in art criticism. Is that a part of your conscious intention? Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess the whole book kind of pivots around the question of critique and what it... Mm what it is in a Kantian frame and what it is understood to be in an art theoretical frame as mm. well, I guess. Um, I, f- I found when I sort of got deep into reading the third critique that the more I followed threads of references to Kant within art theory, the more I found that Kant had been misapprehended, mm. um, often inflected through a lens, um, a, a Greenberg-shaped lens, I guess, yes. um, which sort of dismissed and disnounced, uh, dismissed <laughs> and denounced um, aesthetic experience as a um, as a kind of juridical. Um, mode of judgment um, and I think that there's that there's a widespread idea of um, critique that is also in my view mistakenly attached to this sort of um, teleology of a resolution yes that you critique in order to arrive at a conclusion mm. um, whereas I believe as a painter particularly that critique constitutes a sort of opening out Mm. and that that for me the process of painting is about opening out a a sort of set of signifiers in relation to one another that can meet the critique in this kind of um, expansive way I guess. Were you motivated to bring Kant and art criticism together by were you was there a dissatisfaction about the state of art criticism that played a role in in motivating that or did you come to the art criticism through reading Kant Um, I came to it through reading Kant Mm. Um, I mean I like Greenberg had always been like a villain um, in my art education yeah right Um, and that's something that accompanied the advent of conceptualism Mm -hmm. I guess in the 60s and it's very much a New York narrative right? Um, and then you know because Greenberg's acolytes were um, Rosalind Krauss and Michael Freed yes you you mentioned them both sort of rebelled against him but have both interestingly sort of ended up back yes um, in his you know in his positions one way or another um so I guess Greenberg's kind of insistence on on medium specificity and he, he had a very essentialist um, account of the history of painting. Um, he refused any kind of social causation. Yes. Um, and considered that the medium 
could kind of infinitely come up with variations within itself. So it was a very sort of purist yeah. um, thing. And he he was he famously referred to himself as having the eye, <laughs> the ability to sort of make these judgments um, about what uh, what was like a really good work of art, you know. And, and to me, that is paradoxically, he's kind of embodying the the Kantian subject as the person who believes that their subjective universality is in fact universal. Yes. Without realising that they're caught in a mechanism, a precognitive mechanism that makes them believe that, you know. Yeah, this is this is the extraordinary work you do in the in the first chapter, so it of your of painting as a critical form. So it, it seems to me that, that when you Criticize Greenberg, um, and the, the first, this is Clement Greenberg. The, the first chapter of, of Helen's book is called "Clem Bashing," um, and you, on the one hand, do so as a exemplarily bad interpreter of Kant, but also whose interpretation of Kant seems to have cast a shadow on the reception of Kant in the world of art criticism in general. That that almost, you know, whether one is pro-Kant or anti-Kant in the world of art criticism, it's Greenberg's yeah. Kant. The, the, it's, the, it's the reading of the third critique through Greenberg that you're reacting to. Yeah, which takes us back to the woman gesturing towards the car. Right. You know, where these people are probably... They're, they're primarily probably interested in dismissing Greenberg and Kant just kind of... It's like throwing the baby out with the bath. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. don't necessarily go back and read the Kant. To be anti, to be anti, Greenberg is to be anti-Kantian. But you are both, you are both critical of Greenberg's position and actually managed to, to show um, how much the failures of his critical position come from a misunderstanding of the third critique. In, in, yeah. In particular, um, uh, seems to me this your criticism of Greenberg, and and other art critics who followed in his wake seems to me to be based on two things. One. Um, the way that they impose this juridical uh, model on Kant, right, by assuming that what Kant calls judgment in the third critique, which he famously uh, derives into, uh, um, splits into determinate and reflective judgment, that on the one hand, they ignore what Kant calls reflective judgment, or at least don't pay enough attention to it, um, the details of which we'll talk about in a moment, but also that in ignoring reflective judgment, they also make the mistake of thinking that aesthetic experience or the, the universality the paradox of subjective universality that Kant announces in relation to aesthetic experiences and the experience of the beautiful, actually, um, that when Kant talks about this this paradoxical universality, he's actually talking about something like the ability to develop a subjective faculty to make judgments of taste that could then be universalizable, right? This is this is not at all true, right? This is as in for you, and I would say rightly, um, Kant is when he's talking about that universality in aesthetic experience, this has nothing this this has nothing to do with taste in the sense of coming up with a, a a kind of canon or an, an organon of taste, like a handbook for what is good and bad yeah, taste, what is absolutely. art, what is kitsch. I mean, it's it's to do with what happens on the conscious level if you're 
internal faculties are thrown into harmony with one another by mm. an experience of beauty and your and that your brain rationalizes that by believing that surely this must be beautiful for everybody yes like, you know that the because everybody has the capacity to to have that harmonious swing occur within themselves so i guess i see it as a as a, attaching to a sort of speculative notion of community it's um i think you know when the when the subject kind of undergoes this experience mm. it's not like they're picturing every single person in the world and <laughs> agreeing with them that this is that, beautiful yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a speculative notion of community that arises in their mind so community that would be that would be possible but not actual it's not a reference to an empirical already existing yeah, no, community. I, don't, no. i don't see it as being so no no but it seems to me that um for greenberg perhaps it is something like that like like it's a reference to the the tradition of of uh artists working within a particular medium or or um the tr- the the community of sort of critics responding to artists working within this particular medium or something of that sort yeah i mean i i am not sure that greenberg even apprehends the subjective in in relation to the universality to me he believes his judgments to be universally valid <laughs> which is what i mean when i say he's like the the um the perfect kantian subject <laughs> that he's unable to step outside of his own subject subjectivity right as in so you you, you mean that he he takes his subjectivity as a guide to the universal like as as if it actually reflects the you know, yeah. wow and when yeah. you and in the i mean maybe that's only possible when you're working as an art critic mm-hmm. in the context of a new york that is <laughs> seeking to kind of find new cultural meaning post war and sure, you sure. know these and where there's a whole lot of new money that's looking to spend itself and mm. looking for guidance on that you know it's like the the conditions were there to support that delusion that makes a that makes a lot of sense to me that that we we want to critic because we want to know i mean and insofar as that traditional notion of criticism implies a judgment of value of worth but in the in the literal sort of fiduciary sense of, of value we we want we want to know how much this stuff is worth and we want there to be the person um endowed with the faculty of judgment who can tell us that you know this is worth spending exactly. millions of dollars of and this is yeah yeah that's that seems eminently plausible to me but okay this so the question of subjective universality this moment that we've talked about in the experience of the beautiful has been um endlessly attractive to philosophers many of you um, mm-hmm. have have debated about it um mm. relation to this idea of the the kind of community that it evokes the the census communis um yeah. you talk about this in relation to um uh arent's reading in her in her um yep. i think posthumously published final lectures on kant's third critique where she says that um if there is a politics in kant it is in the critique of judgment and and in yeah. relation to um uh some of jean francois lietard's remarks on the on the census communists can you can you tell me how you 
uh, worked through these two different notions of the census communis to, to come to your own understanding of it because it, your own version is, is kind of, it seems to be neither the Arendtian one nor, nor Lietas. Yeah, I mean, I guess to put it in, in bold terms, um, Arendt um, is, she, she's sort of driven to um, situate the census communis as a as a polity, mm. or, you know, it's, she's she's driven to to seek a political reading, um, and to sort of situate the spectator as actor. Mm. Um, whereas Leotard sort of emphatically um, claims that the census communis stops with the internal experience of the individual. And that 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 it's sort of just like a nice moment, <laughs> and that's and that's pretty much it. So it just it, in that case is it identical to that euphony of the of the faculty? Is that non-rule governed harmony? Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way there, um, in a, in the way that I read it, Kant is sort of um, the the euphony within. The individual's sort of cognitive faculties or metacognitive faculties mm. um, becomes almost like an analogy for the for this sense of universality outside, you know, in the in the world, where I think Leotard wants to cut that off and say that it that there's no resonance. Whereas you think Arendt substantialises it too much, goes goes too, too quickly to thinking of it as an actual polity and the way we yeah the way we you know in making a political statement we we imply the possibility of people who share my faculties who could understand and can test the judgment yeah and whereas i i mean i don't i'm not sure that the census communists can constitute the foundation of a of a polity no. in that sense um yeah and you seem to yeah Want and I think I think this is one of this is an extraordinary moment in the book to sort of stay with the idea that the census communis unquestionably evokes a community, evokes the possibility of, of communication of a of a sort of um, reconci- paradoxical reconciliation between the singular and the universal, or the or the subjective and the and the communal, yeah. while at the same time, um, you know, den- in a sense. Mm. Neither, neither affirming nor denying the reality of that. It's like you want to leave it in a, as a as a question, in as a as an aporia or, or something for for the person undergoing aesthetic experiences. Yeah, I guess. It, I mean, I'm all for the aporia. <laughs> I think it's really crucial, and that's that idea of aporia um, is something that Christoph Menke has spoken about right. quite a bit as well. What does Menke say here? Um, he talks about he talks about the aporia in a in the sense of the the formation of of a community that in putting yourself at stake in a judgment you at once are. Uh, a kind of propagating this idea that your judgment is absolute and universal. Yes. But 
in order to be at stake in it, you were forced to acknowledge that there are other opinions yes. that might contradict it. Yes. So in acknowledging the community, you are acknowledging the, that your own sense of universality is, is not absolute. That you are not yet Clement Greenberg. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's, something of this, something of this idea that you mentioned from Manka, which I'm not familiar with, does seem to be present in... in in Arendt's lectures, which is why I think you have the, the, that sort mm. of um, uh, ambivalent reaction to her. You mentioned the way in which Greenberg focuses uh, very much on the notion of a particular medium and its, its, its own capacity for kind of infinite reflexivity and purging itself in this kind of uh, uh, formalist way, right? Yeah. Um, but it seems to me that one of the things that guides the reflection of the entire book is thinking about the situation of painting as a, a, a post in a in a post medium art world, right? Mm, like as yeah. in as in why persist with this with this um, occasionally anachronistic and considered what what is judged to be anachronistic, reactionary, played out, dead form. And yeah, I mean, I guess. You know, I think the first recorded instance of painting being declared dead was by Delaroche in the 18th century. Right. So that's a <laughs> claim that's been, you know, it's like a zombie claim. That yeah, keeps yeah. Returning. Um, Is and it like philosophy? Um, to quote something about philosophy, uh, painting buries its grave diggers, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I came up with a metaphor for it the other day. <laughs> right, I was right. quite pleased with it, that I was thinking maybe painting is kind of like hair insofar as it's technically dead but Aha. it grows Aha. and you can shape it yes and, and accessorize it <laughs> color it and you know it it's very versatile but it's also if you cut it off it becomes gross and repellent you know like the f- hair on the floor of the hairdresser yes which i think i was using as a metaphor for people who today insist on this very rigid, narrow kind of idea of medium specificity of the locus of meaning for painting, mm-hmm. which I think um, I think painting's kind of sustained and moved on from that. Yeah. yeah. It's like you, so you, you simultaneously want to reject the, you know, you, it's, it's like you want to simultaneously say, Rumors of the death of painting have been have been greatly exaggerated, but on the other hand, not take refuge in the idea that no, well, well, I suppose a Greenbergian idea that no, it is this it is this specific medium with its its uh, medium bound kind of traditions and continual react to it. Like the hair metaphor implies that I think correctly that that you know that it, its own death, like its real death, doesn't stop it in any way right like it's fecundity i think to use a word you used at some point in the book the fact that um it is still it is gravid in its in its death yeah i mean i think you know painting isn't impervious to these critiques that get leveled at it but it tends to absorb them and they become tools to to sort of they kind of broaden the repertoire of conceptual moves, I guess. Hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, I kind of think about that in a general sense with all of the baggage of painting, like to decide to paint 
still life now in a contemporary art context is very different to deciding to paint a still life 200 years ago. Oh, certainly. Um, and that's because of its context and the way that it gets situated and that there's a whole language of reflexivity around painting now that's that's sort of as as meaningful as the mark making and the surface itself like I'd give an instance of someone like Christopher Wool who is like a, a canonically well-regarded painter and his paintings are usually like um like he's most well known for like jokes that are painted with black paint on a white surface like they're very like performing these reflexive operations and showing you that they know that they're performing them mm-hmm. yeah. i think this brings us back to, to the to the issue of, of how you understand um, how you bring Kant to painting, how you bring that, that sort of Kantian sense of critique to, to painting when you call painting painting a critical form. So once we've established, uh, once you've um, criticised the tradition for its uh, poor readings of Kant and pointed to something else that's going on in the critique of judgment with the sense of communis and with this uh, sense of subjective universality, how, how do you then uh, bring these Kantian concerns around critique to the question of painting and what painting is today or what it can do? Um, I mean, I guess this is where my subjective approach to painting kind of comes into play. I, whilst reading Kant, I was particularly taken with the notion of the aesthetic idea. Mm. Um, And, you know, Kant's famous example of an aesthetic idea is Jupiter's eagle with the lightning in its <laughs> claws, which is a, a signifier of the the great king in heaven, I think. Um, yes, yes. And this, so there's this idea that you can have a signifier and its function is to sort of gesture towards this thing that it can never actually represent fully. Mm-hmm. So the, the function of the aesthetic idea has failure at its heart to me because the symbol has to fail to represent the thing in order to even gesture towards the thing. Um, Yes. And that's an idea that that interests me a lot. Um, I guess I'm very um, averse to paintings that... I'm I'm very um, stridently trying to avoid um, letting my work resolve into a clear message. Yes. Um, I, I feel like, you know, particularly if you're dealing with um, any kind of politically loaded subject matter, you run the risk of your work becoming an opinion piece. Oh, certainly. And that's something that I actively <laughs> resist. Um, and I guess I'm more interested in, you know, particularly at the moment I've been um, mining a lot of... Um, image archives of like cartoons from the bulletin from the 19th century right, right. like this all these kind of images that were popular cultural images in Australia in the 19th century and particularly in Melbourne hmm. and resituating them and bringing them into the contemporary context 
and pushing them up against other images of empire and also contemporary images to sort of throw them back into consideration. Yes. Um, and I guess that that kind of approach comes from this idea of of the aesthetic idea is dealing with signifiers in a way where you're opening them out and expanding them into something unknown rather than sort of making a statement right right rather than them being sort of completely subsumed or exhausted in a concept or something like that i mean yeah seems to me there's yeah that there's a an understandable protest there against the the idea um it makes me want to ask you about your relationship to adorno who you also mentioned a few times in the book but but like if if art becomes identical to a kind of didactic content then there's the question of what the point was in putting it in that form right as in could I if if your painting is reducible to a certain political message could I just you know you know especially given it might be hung in the sort of rarefied space of a gallery would it not be better to kind of just take the message and disseminate it as tweets or as an article or something it's something it's always like a handy litmus test if you can write to explain the idea of this work, then is there a reason to make it? Yes. In, in, a, in a material form. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that's so interesting about your, your book is that it raises these questions which I think have to be of great um, significance to, to artists, where they feel on the one hand there isn't a, there is no longer a sort of uh, telos of art in some vague notion of beauty or something like that or, mm. or you know in or, or even uh, that it can take refuge in in uh, some strict ideology of, of la pudeur of art for art's sake um, yeah. what that which Giorgio Agamben calls like attempting to uh, art's attempt to elevate itself to the dignity of a commodity it can't do <laughs> it can't do yeah. it can't do that but also the problem that we just mentioned around around the reduction to some to some content that could be... a message. Yeah, to a message or something like... And I mean, the inverse of that is in the context of of an art school at a university, the convention, or at least... Excuse me. At least the convention when I was going through uh, Monash was that you um, write about your own work or you write in a way that makes an address to your work Mm. and, and... sort of explains it I guess or like justifies, justifies it, it yeah um, and I've I found myself vehemently opposed to that approach yes. um, my feeling is that if as an artist I were to write this sort of 30,000 word exegesis about <laughs> my own practice it would preclude the possibility of other people making interpretations yes. because it's already been dictated and to me it's it's not useful or interesting for an artist to to be the one to do that it's yeah i mean this is very uh, interesting uh, given i'm not sure to what extent the book is is based i know it's based off your doctoral thesis but if if the book is your doctoral thesis it seems in no way to to make the sort of standard artistic justice of justifying the paintings of of Helen Johnson no, in any explicit. No, it doesn't refer to my work. I mean, the only difference to the thesis originally was the thesis contained about twenty extra pages of me having to explain why I'd made that decision. 
mm. because my supervisors were worried that <laughs> I'd fail. Because, because um, that's the game, right? Like you, you, you do your work and then you write a piece justifying it in which you yeah, invoke... Yeah, you kind of anxiously signpost everything all the way through it. Right, right. And, and invoke uh, sort of an arbitrary grab bag of theoretical concept. You say your work is terribly deterritorialized like in Deleuze and Guattari exactly. or something or something like that. Yeah, and it ends up in this realm of the, sp- the spurious claim and the bad neologism. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, that seems like a, 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 a great um, title and even kind of rubric for theses in general, the spurious claim and the bad neologism, a, ju- <laughs> a journal of PhD theses <laughs> written. Um, okay, so, you, yeah, you take this notion from, from Karl and then seems to me um, applying the notion of the aesthetic idea to, to painting to try and uh, describe something like painting's own capacity for criticality. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain a, a, a bit what, what you mean by that? By, by what is, what is the, the critical potential of, of painting? Um, I mean, I guess it to my mind it goes back to this idea of of that expansiveness mm-hmm. that it's it's never about drawing a conclusion it's about shifting the way that people encounter an image or a subject that they may have encountered so many times before that it's invisible to them or they they may have never encountered i guess I mean, the two artists I wrote about, Kippenberger and Juan de Villa, um, you know, from very different contexts and very different approaches to painting, but they both deal with the political climate that they each find themselves in through painting. Yes. um, Without making didactic comments. Um, They... I mean, for for instance, you know, to, to return to speaking about this um, context of post-war Germany, um, one of the Kippenberger paintings I talk about is called, I might be slightly paraphrasing here, but it's called something like, with the best will in the world, I can't make out a swastika. <laughs> yes. And the, the sort of visual joke of that painting is that when you encounter it in a gallery context, you read it as a kind of, hokey attempt at, a, at an early Mondrian mm. rip-off or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's sort of got this cubist edge to it and it's lurid kind of yellowy green and red and black and grey. It's quite an ugly painting and it's got gunky kind of organic lines underneath the surface and, and it's only when you kind of lean in to read the wall didactic and see the title that you get sort of flipped out of that art historical mode of judgment into thinking about it in relation to the fact that the state have recently passed a ban on drawing swastikas in Germany. So the painting's angles are always almost making a swastika, but there's an arm missing or it kind of (laughs) goes around a wonky corner or something. So I guess this was Kippenberger's way of, of, of sort of stating how problematic it is to, to for, for a, a state to convince itself that it can find resolve that easily and that this is going this is going to keep kind of returning 
in more and more horrific forms in all likelihood, you know. You do an extraordinary analysis of that of that painting, I, and also about why it is a painting. You do that with with Juan de Villa, and with um, uh, with Kippenberger. Is, is is what made them choose to do the, the the kind of the work as paintings? And I recall that in the case of the. Um, with the best will in the world, um, you know, I, I, I cannot see a, sph- a sphastica, um, that you, you mentioned that one of the other things that's going on in Germany at the time is, is the kind of West German art establishment has, conservative West German art establishment has very reluctantly sort of started to lionize what during the, the, the Nazi side, during Hitler's regime would have been um, considered decadent, Jewish, degenerate, degenerate like yeah. like suprematist or cubist art, and this yeah. this this painting, you know, if it had been done in in uh, 1934 in Germany, it would have been considered an example of decadent modern art. But the fact yeah. that it's done in uh, Germany in the 1980s means, yeah, you get that thing of oh, this is yet another of. Um, attempt in that to do the kind of work that has now become respectable yeah, after becoming absolutely. banned. And particularly in the context of Kippenberger at that time still being like a bad boy artist who was kind of miffed that he wasn't being included in institutional <laughs> collections that his friends were starting to get into. So <laughs> right, I didn't realise. also a sort of assertion of his own position. That, that's that's awesome. I mean, let's let's talk about Kippenberger a bit and what attracted you to him. I mean, in your descriptions of him, um, so just as, just as a, a prelude, before you talk about uh, the villa and and Kippenberger, you, you do this really interesting thing where you um, talk about how one could perhaps today reconceive the Kantian notion of genius, sort of after after Duchamp. Um, in relation to recontextualization, which is which is mm. something that, from what you've said in the course of our discussion, seems really um, uh, central to your notion of the criticality of painting, its relationships to other media, uh, the way there can be a sort of painterly element in things that are not strictly painting, and so forth. This a lot of this revolves around, I think, these notions of of recontextuali- recontextualization, and mm. this will lead you at some point to make an extraordinary, um, uh, wonderfully counterintuitive connection between genius and uh, stupidity, um, which which mm. uh, you show that uh, is gets exemplified in some of Kippenberger's. Can you can you talk to me about the yeah the relationship between genius and stupidity and how you managed to uh, come to the concept? You've drawn a number of theoretical resources yeah. on stupidity and so forth. Yeah, I mean that began with reading Avatar Renell's mm. wonderful book on stupidity, which was a very um, compelling and inspiring text for me. Um, and you know how you kind of pull threads out of things and you, you end up on a kind of trail of breadcrumbs or whatever. Um, <laughs> yes. That led me to reading Uwe Wirt, who's mm. a German theorist, um, or kind of struggling through and doing bad translations of <laughs> um, who and and Beard, I think was drawing on an, an idea from Schelling about um, this kind of schematic of of um, imagining um, that thought 
that the, there are these moments when thought kind of um, sort of sails sails to heights um, from which it can jump off in two directions, either into genius or into stupidity and foolishness. Mm. And I was really taken with this idea that it's such a a close relationship between those two things mm. and that there's that and that wit kind of plays a role in there too in a way that I'm probably too inarticulate to explain right now <laughs> but um I was yeah I found it really interesting to sort of think about you know I mean no one's really interested in being a genius anymore it's like the most no. unfashionable thing that Sorry. you could possibly come up with it's just associated with white male kind of boring arrogance love, privilege yeah. wanker dumb yeah yes yeah. yes um so the the idea that it's that you could sort of understand it as being structurally linked to stupidity um and also to to um failure to the the idea of that this thought kind of stops short before it reaches genius um and instead through failure kind of arrives at something else that I think Viet kind of argues that stupidity and wit are kind of wedded to each other um despite the fact that they putatively seem like opposites like like they prima facie yeah um, I think so um sorry I can't remember the I might look at something because because I I recall that you um link the concepts together it, it, through despite the, your um reliance on Viet and Renell that you actually link the concepts together through a Kantian understanding of both genius and well foolishness is a is a, a, yeah. a, a mencia is a, a technical yeah. a technical <laughs> Kantian Kantian term um yeah let's uh, let's um I'm going to... Oh, I found the quote yeah. of um, Viet. Should I read it? Please, Is that please. Too no, not at all. Protracted? No. Okay, um, it reads... Oh, and again, I have to... Um, I have to caveat that this is my own translation, so it's oh, sure. not entirely correct. The ground for genius lies in the boldness of the anticipation. Indeed, herein lies also the risk of failure. Since for Kant, the term genius is synonymous with idiosyncratic mind, and mind and joke are seen as a unit in the French esprit, Mm -hmm. one can with caution conclude that the idiosyncratic mind of genius also has to be funny. Which, yeah, I really enjoyed the idea of that. And I, I guess kind of arguing that Duchamp sort of detached originality from genius yes by sort of supplanting originality into context that it's sort of I've I found myself thinking about genius as this potentially rich pliable space where you could think about fucking up in a, as a productive kind of space of meaning which which, which is like very um fits very well with the way I approach painting. 
<laughs> yes, yes. Would you also inherit from the, the testimony of, from your own practice and also from the testimony of other artists who describe their practice in, in this way? I recall you um, quoting a number of them. But yeah, I, I'm trying to um, see that I can reconstruct in my head some of the uh, moves you make because I, I, it, it stems from... I, I seem to remember the, the Kantian notion of genius as a talent for um, uh, coming up, for working in a space beyond the rule, right? That you're no longer doing yeah. determinate judgment, you're not subsuming something particular under a, a concept. Yeah, like, it's basically the genius has a talent for producing aesthetic ideas. Yes, yes, and 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 that's why that that link to the um, absence of a rule is what links it to esprit which is which is yeah. wit in French but then with the I, I I have this memory that there is a link between th- these notions genius and wit and the aesthetic idea via I think what Kant calls and you talk about the the notion of or, or the th- the failure implied in the notion of, of hypotyposis, the, the attempt to give, mm. to give a concept um, sensible form, that, that the idea, you know, that you could try and present a concept uh, sensibly as a what Kant would call an intuition, but for yeah. Kant, this always this always fails, right? Yeah, um, and there's and this there's extraordinary. This, sorry, and there's an idea that I mean, I don't think he kind of puts these two ideas on the same page, but there's. An, an, an idea that foolishness results from failing to arrive at a sensible form mm. where the aesthetic idea um, never has that arrival as its telos to mm. begin with. Um, it's a so, way that it won't do that. Yeah, yeah it can't do it's that. It's sort yeah. of like that's its edge or something. Yes, yes. And so I kind of, putting those two things together, argued that the aesthetic idea that the only distinction there is that the aesthetic idea knows it must fail yes so it can it can kind of get on with failing and having the upper hand for having failed yes yes but the way you present this this failure is it's uh, which i think is entirely um, um kantian is that is that it's Despite that awareness of failure, it's not like it gives up the attempt. It's like it's like no. you said. It's, it's constantly trying to give sensuous form to to not just a concept, but uh, because that would only that would be like one uh, rule, one one judgment. You could derive, you know, you could go from a judgment to a syllogism, but but almost a sort of infinite, uh, like a, a pinball machine of concept to concepts yeah. to concepts to concepts to concepts. Exactly. It's yeah. trying to do that, or like expanding it's... foam or something. Right, like... right. Yeah, 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 and and it doesn't give up on that idea. In fact, maybe it manages to achieve what it achieves. That that sense as part of the viewer's aesthetic experience. That that you know, I I in responding to it think think wait, but there is there is an idea here. There is something that you know. There is purposiveness. As, as yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're still stuck there with the eagle with the lightning in its claws, right? Even if you 
can't hang out with the king of heaven. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. It's still, but it, it, it makes me feel for a moment that I can and that maybe... Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe the next one. Maybe the next <laughs> one. Maybe the king of heaven's just around the corner. <laughs> so so this, this brings me to... to I, 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 I suppose back to you, and I, I want to ask you some questions about this, both in relation to painting and dissociated, but back to the question of, of politics. When you, in your readings of, of uh, uh, the, uh, Davila, who's a, a Chilean, Australian artist, and, and Kippenberger, you, you um, discuss the way that their work involves this, this kind of recontextualization in the, in the Kantian sense that, that maybe disrupts the. I don't know the the received something like the the received ideas or the received frameworks, the inherited frameworks mm-hmm. uh, from which through which we make sense of things. And it, it it seems to me that a lot of your at the heart of your vision of painting is the idea that painting's criticality, that this this sort of criticality that is fundamental to it can even in the post medium condition can disrupt these these inherited yeah. frameworks concepts and categories and i guess that um i guess for me there's a parallel between 1980s germany and australia today and probably since colonization hmm. in you know to make it a generalization but um in that they're both um, situations of collective denial. Yes, right. And that, you know, the media in a societal context like that, there's always going to be an underlying agenda and there's, and there's also this problem of, you know, that things get reduced to opinion. Um, and I think, you know, painting can play a very particular role in that kind of setting because it was once connected to an idea of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, prior to the advent of photography, painting was sort of charged with um, the production of representations yes. um, and was the only means for that or, I mean, no, not the only means, I guess it's like drawing and etching and things like that. Sure. But but painting was sort of like the dominant means of of representation, I I suppose. And then with the arrival of photography, painting was sort of um, relieved of that task. Mm. Um, So I I guess I, I think about painting now as having been relieved of the burden of of serving any notion of truth not that it ever did I mean I mean not that it ever um offered truth but it offered an, a notion of truth if that makes sense I mean it was always entangled with um political interests and and this kind of thing you know in the renaissance for instance but um I feel like that it creates a space where painting can operate on images now in a way that isn't just about producing a representation of that image, that you can decide to paint an image 
in a hesitant way or in an aggressive way um, or in a sterile way. I don't know, there's like there are all these different um, modes that you can bring and ways in which you can make an image like shaky or loose with painting. Hmm. That, that makes sense. Sorry, I feel like I've just been rabbiting on. No, it. on the contrary, um, I'm, I'm really struck by that. That's that's strikes me as both fascinating and profound and something I never thought about and something I didn't even get from your book but but the idea that at the point it abandons the its apparent vocation to to bring truth through representation that painting can contest the truth or put differently the lives of a regime that armed with another technology that seems more effortlessly uh, uh, to make claims to represent the truth right like so so in the the age of photography in the age of mechanical reproduction I mean that's that's actually yeah I think an amazing kind of dialectical argument painting um, it also goes with all your motifs of failure almost recovers its its connection to truth at the point where its its failure is total, like like yeah, it can exactly yeah, that's no, a space of freedom. That's that's yeah, that's extraordinary, and it makes me think that that reminds me that in the book you you actually do um, talk about the relationship between painting and truth apropos of this. Um, unfortunately, and, and to me, I must admit, like it's it's haunted me for a very long time. Um, um, difficult notion of truth content in in Adorno mm. in a, in aesthetic theory. Can I ask before we, you know, instead of the two of us going down that sort of rabbit hole, I just oh what, else, what, what does what does that what does that idea mean for you at the, at the moment? Like like granting all of the sort of complexities that might be involved, but what attracted you to, to that idea um, in, in our friend Teddy? I mean, I guess it's it's useful to me, in, in my, like, I would say limited understanding um, of Adorno in general and of truth content specifically. Um, I've... In reading about it, I felt that it was a useful term to talk about painting because it it frees it up from this problem of talking about truth mm-hmm. as such, mm-hmm. um, and it can kind of, you know, maybe it inhabits a space that that might overlap with the aesthetic idea as well as a. A space that's not quantifiable. Yes. Um, but is but is nonetheless present. Yes. Um, or able to be engaged. Mm, certainly. Um, yeah, and I think I was discussing it in in relation to form and mm-hmm. Davila. I mean, Davila didn't use the like truth content at right, the term, right. but my reading of his account was that artists sort of dress truth content up with a facade of form. Yes. Which I thought was a really interesting way to think about painting and to think about aesthetic experience as a way into something. Yes. The, what you just said, um, artists 
um, camouflage truth content with with form. Sorry, I, I paraphrase, but that that actually sounds very similar to something that Adorno himself says. I, I think that yeah, that's the right. idea that that, that that form is that kind of um, uh, necessary mask for the the truth content like there would be no truth content without the without the form and yet yeah. the form is what is what conceals it like yeah the things that seems to me similar about you and Adorno is that I think you're both motivated and and also apart from the profound influence of of Emmanuel Kant on both of you but as the idea that um you don't you want to resist uh what Adorno, who thought Brecht was a great poet and a great thinker in various ways, but always had a problem within Brecht, the reduction of, of art to a, a political didacticism, mm. but at the same time to reject any kind of, like, you know, art is uh, it, a sort of reactionary idea that art is eternally inured, like, like um, in, in its own space and, and kind of cut off from the world and, and, and gets its validity by virtue of that, of that distance yeah. from the world. You don't, mm. But it seems that you, you both hang on to notions of, of truth and distance, but not truth as representation. But I wonder whether your concept is more even like... Uh, I, I don't want to use a label like a, a Lacanian thing, but it seems to me that y- you have a notion of the truth of painting. Yeah, I want to see how you react to this. This this could be complete bollocks, but I'm going to put it at you anyway. The, the, I am totally going there. Um, the truth, uh, uh, I'm the Lacanian formula springs to mind of truth as that which. Um, punches a hole in knowledge. Right, I'm sort of combining yeah. Lacan and Sartre, but but as in that the truth content of the painting has something to do with reorienting or disorienting mm. um, uh, what has hitherto passed as truth in the realm of re- report on, yeah this yeah yeah I absolutely agree with that and I mean Australia's like it's rich pickings you know if you're working in this context in that way because there's just so much deceit constantly being dished out in the public realm by the government and back through history. Let me ask you about that specifically, like like stepping away from a moment from, from Kant or Adorno or these kind of things, but about that uh, deception that you mentioned you mentioned before. Um, <laughs> even though I have an idea of this, but I, I think, but for, for my sake and also for the lessons, um, especially if there are any who, who do not uh, know this this noble land of liberty from which we come but 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 tell me a bit about how you see that that deceit and that long history of deceit in australia i mean i guess from my position of experience it's um you know one of the loci of it is in the education system right where um you know there's there are like plenty of written Records regarding the brutality of colonisation and massacres that were undertaken throughout Australia. Um, Most definitely. You know, it's like all sorts of unspeakable mistreatment that's that's gone on and continues to go on. I mean, the Dundale Detention Centre um, is just one of many examples. Um, and... You know, and then on the other hand, um, you know, I recently read a 
a book by Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu. Um, and he's a, a Bunurong man. Mm. Um, and he went through a lot of early explorers' accounts and extracted all of these passages that describe um, like large-scale agricultural practices and like um, growing of specific grains over acres and acres of land and storage of tons and tons of grain and, hmm. and also architectural um, approaches like to like many instances of, of villages of permanent dwellings that were often like hundreds of dwellings in one place. Um, I no guess one, the nomad myth, Terran Nullius, part, as part ludicrous. of the Terran Nullius myth, yeah. which is, yeah, nonsense, yes. And, you know, all of this, you know, a lot of those villages obviously got raised. Um, yes. And, you know, it's just insane to me that none of that is is in the education system, mm-hmm. that, that, that these histories aren't public knowledge like among non-indigenous people unless you seek that knowledge yourself and instead of those things we have this overlay of you know advanced Australia fair and which we can't even you know for those who've come across the sea we can't even sort of stick to our own propaganda (laughs) um we, we, yeah, f- from those who've come across the sea, we have Boundless concentration camps for you. In the, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. But we're not very keen on sharing those boundless plains, right? Yeah. And, and in fact, they're not really boundless either. They're more kind of fenced in and so forth. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Except for that we've deaccessioned the whole of Australia from its own territory now. So there's technically no... Oh, this is the no, most nothing. amazing idea I've ever heard. Sorry, I heard. Um, I, I think we're referring to the same thing, but I heard uh, Ziggy Yurt can't talk about this this mm. extraordinary um, uh, metaphysical move made by the Australian government about where the territory of Australia um, starts and ends in relation to to refugees to those seeking asylum. Can you tell yes. the audience a bit about this? Because this I mean, this idea blew my mind. It's like, same. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. we must have both seen Ziggy talking right, about Right, right, at the same evening. time. Ah, yes, yeah, yes, that's so, right. Yeah, you but should, no, no, I want, no, no, Helen, please. <laughs> than me. I mean, I can only remember that, like a rough mm-hmm. sketch of mm-hmm. it, but that it was a move that, Perhaps it was prior to the offshore detention centres being established. It was definitely a, around like, about the same time. I'm not sure if yeah, it was before it was after, yeah. But under Howard, When I think, they so. were struggling to come up with ways to have an excuse not to let people um, onto the shores mm. of Australia, that they... I can't even remember, like, what the specific... Um, terminology of it was. Do you remember, like? No. Yeah, I only remember the the general idea that it was something like that. The the borders of Australia, like retreat, essentially retreat That's in right. the face of the footsteps yeah. of the of the refugee and 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 so forth. Like like to stop. Uh, any claims that that you might make in relation to sort of international law that that once um, you know a refugee had landed on Australia and saw that the government like had a kind of humanitarian duty to to care for these people yeah. that, that, that they actually said no we will redefine like this this extraordinary sort of uh, judicial metaphysics Australia like the territory of Australia so the territory 
retreat like is constituted by where the refugee isn't right so as they advance like australia itself sort of contracts in the face of it it's it's, it's just yeah with all the and the the strange like from a psychoanalytic sense power given to the 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 agency that is being ascribed on a metaphysical level yeah 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 it's just extraordinary um uh but yes so we are you uh, sort of grandiose metaphysical fictions, but yeah, but you say lengths we will go to. Yeah, but you, you mentioned rightly that this is this is something that we've maybe always been doing and are still yeah. doing now. Um, so for just yeah, for those of, this is uh, Helen mentioned the Dondale um, uh, tension center, which is a scandal. I think it's been reported internationally of, of um, detention facilities for for. Uh, uh, yeah. Indigenous youth are like kind of being kept in appalling conditions, essentially being subject tortured. to torture. It, it, exactly. Um, and, the, and additionally to that, you know, Adam Giles, who's just rightly been voted out in the Northern Territory, mm-hmm. claiming that he'd never um, heard about this before when it's been reported in the press. Two years ago, it's, it was first reported in the press. But so. just not with as much fanfare, not with... Yeah, yeah. not with, like, the CCTV. Yeah, yeah, that's not with these not with these images that it's almost impossible to, to sort of, 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 you know, at young people being being sort of flogged and isolated with, with bags over their heads, like it's Guantanamo, etc., and, and so on. These are, like, yeah. teenagers who've, you know, I don't know, been, been caught smoking pot or loitering or, you know, yeah. being... Aboriginal on the street, or, or like, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, but you see, I mean, I, I, I wanted to mention that because there's a, in terms of this this history and presence of denial. I mean, we both would have read similar things about um, various um, Indigenous Australians saying um, when this scandal was reported by the ABC um, by the um, on television that they said, you know everyone knew that this was going on and that there's nothing extraordinary yeah. about this this is this is kind of business as usual as far as we're concerned but um but yeah i want to know how how do you think this regime of denial works in australia given that as you also said information is available like on the one hand it's mm. not on the curriculum and so forth but it's not like as you said there aren't thousands of of books on such on the way we treat well, and also, like, the internet. I mean, I think that's, like, an amazing thing about the internet becoming this dominant space in yeah. our societies. You know, you have groups like Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance yes. who, like, have organised so many protests around Australia yes. um, in the past couple of years and that there is a growing awareness where, you know, previously, you know, to, to kind of find that information, you had to, yeah, kind of go and troll through libraries and, and things that maybe a lot of people wouldn't necessarily do That's with their true. time. That's true. Know? That's true. Where you that could very be... quickly do this. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, I mean, I think there's still, like, an extraordinary amount of people in Australia who know very little about Australian history um, nonetheless Um, and to me you know you can as as like a white person 
here. I feel like I can listen and educate myself on yes. one level, but also, you know, in in my paintings, they are explicitly populated with sort of generic white figures, and the the kind of core subject of my work in recent the past couple of years I guess it's been you know considering things like considering this situation from the point of view of that white people are the problem here you know it's like mm -hmm. like Rosalie Kunoth Monk's amazing speech on Q&A where she was just saying I am not the problem and it's like no we white people are the problem <sighs> because there's this fear of um you know, fear of getting found out, you know, about the, that we're living on a s stolen continent. Mm -hmm. You know, like Robbie Thorpe, who's like a local um, Aboriginal activist, talks about that the white governments in Australia treat the country like you'd drive a stolen car. You know that you that you don't give a shit about it because you know that it's not yours, mm. and it's you know that just sort of sums up so much of you know environmental policy, like it really does, yeah, and social policy. You know, and liberal and labor are as bad as each other mm. on those fronts. Most you definitely, know. yeah, just destroy it all, run you know, run it around crazily until all the all the petrol runs out, and yeah, yeah, just like fuck the clutch and mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. just ruin it smash mm -hmm. the windows insofar as you've become i mean you're obviously like you're you're aware about such things and i know in your in your writing as well as your painting you do a lot to to, to attempt to uh contest this or to you know reframe like you mentioned uh uh ref reframe uh, and, and recontextualizes this motif we've been talking about when you mention these white figures in your painting uh, how would you describe what you do there does it have anything to do with the, the idea of mm, not positioning the white person as the, as the subject who then, who then sees the onslaught of refugees coming and so forth but trying to trying to make you know whiteness these these ghosts these these kind of threatening figures uh, emerge in the field of someone else's subjectivity instead of the white person being the the, the only thing that isn't visible in, in i guess they i mean the figures you know they'll often be centrally positioned in the paintings but their materiality is like they're they're physically very flat you know, if you run your fingers over right. them. But the backgrounds are very visceral and grooved and mm. glossy and kind of threaten to en engulf the figures. And, mm. um, you know, like the paintings will sort of address things like the, um, like the, the white man's sort of inability to... Like there's one that's hanging at Acker at the moment, if you're in Melbourne, mm. um, with a figure who's taken from a, a heroic kind of bronzed figure from a painting of the Gold Rush right, right. from the late 19th century. Um, and then an, another female figure standing next to him, and he's been, they're both kind of very pale and flat and washed out, and their 
facial features are almost not there. It's sort of like they're, they're very sort of deprivileged in the way that they're treated. Um, and all of his heroism has been sort of sapped out of him and they're both sort of looking out out of the frame and away from one another and between them is this massive dominating violent figure of empire from a cartoon of like uh, of this kind of crazy figure in boots with a union jack and an axe you know and it's like it's to do with this incapability of of being able to face that and engage it even though it's so dominant and present yes um, and the the paintings often also deal with these kind of different layers of figuration. So there'll be figures taken from historical sources and images, and um, sort of made life size again. And then there'll be there might be like hands or um, legs of a figure that's like contemporary, that's maybe wearing sneakers or something. <laughs> You can tell they're not from the 19th century. <laughs> um, and often the, these interrelations become to do with how how we inherit these histories and what we do with them and whether we receive them as a burden or whether we choose to support them. Or you know, And I'm interested in a degree of ambiguity in the way the figures are interacting yeah. and maybe like holding a part of an image that becomes like a trompe l'oeil kind of separate frame within the painting or this kind of thing so yeah there's a lot of yeah just this kind of pushing around of the potency of those histories I guess that seems so appropriate to me in an Australian context because I think the affects involved the the extent of, of shame and resentment and and uh, um, vacillating between the two like like shame and then resentment about having to feel shame and then impotence and then and then going back to a sort of national glorification that there's so much mm. vacillation in affect that we I think the nation and of course it, it isn't homogenous and so forth but but even if you mean a sort of uh, hegemonic um, uh, media discourse like Murdoch press and so on even mm. even those kind of things do not have a consistent line about this like on the one hand I think we portray yeah empire as as you know embarrassing relic of the like that was all the 19th century which is why yeah, your sneakers the are cultural cringe yeah that's when we've got over that and there's been more reconciliation and and Rudd yeah. apologized in 2008 like like for the for the stolen generation and surely surely yeah. all harm is is undone um, you you do mention but then we, we lack the queen you know, exactly, exactly. But we still, we're still kind of English and so forth. And why should that heritage taint us and 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 Anzac and Gallipoli and and yeah? I think I think I think one of the things your your work does is is um, not just reveal the um, the instability of any of those particular figurations, right? Like the idea that you know, for instance, the idea that we have. Um, uh, buried that we've had our own kind of wrestling with the colonial past, like something that's not true, but also um, testifies to the vacillation of the kind of Australian imaginary around around mm. these things that it moves between guilt and 
and uh, complacency, complacency, yeah. the repudiation of guilt, boredom with guilt, um, um, yeah. guilt about boredom with guilt, and and so forth. Yeah, like, I mean the whole thing with Brandis and his, you know, bigots should have freedom of speech and all this kind of. Right, right. Is that part of the legacy? Is that part of what it means to be a, a, a Australian? Like the rights to be. I mean, so yeah. you know, something something seen with no with little irony and and so forth when it was when it was advocated and therefore does does the burden of you know can can we deflect any ideas of the burden of the of the past by saying uh those who want to defend the rights of indigenous people or or refugees can we can we just subsume those critiques on the idea of of under the notion of enemies of freedom of speech, right? Like, or or something like that, like leftist authoritarians, or yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Mm. I can see why you do this. So, um, a few more questions. So, one, uh, just in the way you just talked about your most recent work, I mean, rem- reminds me quite a lot of of the way you describe uh, Juan de Villa's. Um, Evolution, like particularly mm. the way you describe uh, his uh, the move in his work between the nineteen nineties and uh, the two thousands, and I, I wanted to ask, yeah, to, to what extent is he an, an influence on your current work, and can you can you maybe explain some of the the, yeah. the inheritance and differences there? Totally, I mean, yeah, he's he's like a big influence on my mm. practice and someone who I'm always in awe of. I recently saw some images of a survey exhibition that he um, presented in Chile that's mm. on at the moment, and it's it's just a staggering body of work. He's, yeah, I think it's the first exhibition he's had in Chile since he left in 74 to come here, which was just after the Pinochet coup. So... Um, yeah, it's interesting um, that Davila's work in the 80s and 90s was much more um, abrasive, I guess, than it is now. Um, he would kind of often position politicians. He has this, this is a great example, a painting of um, Burke and Wills, in which I can't remember which out of Burke or Wills, but one of them is getting analingus from a kangaroo <laughs> right. <laughs> using a dental dam, if you know what it is. Wait, no, I don't. What's a dental dam? <laughs> <laughs> so a dental dam was, I guess, something that came into use during the AIDS crisis. And it's right. it's, it's like a protective... It's like a condom for oral sex. Ah. Sort of stretch over. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll leave the rest up. <laughs> so, um, so, and the... That kangaroo has one of those yeah. in order for uh, right, yeah. right, yes. Yeah, if memory serves. <laughs> um, I'm not sure memory could forget that. Although maybe it could condense and displace the image into something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, um, okay. But then, but then there's this transition, right? Like yeah. after it goes from this kind of very provocative, yeah, yeah, and like severed limbs, and the bodies always look really sore right. and sweaty and right. burnt and just you know, just not appropriate for this landscape at all Mm. um and there was a transition i guess in the early 2000s to um i guess you could call it an aesthetic turn where his work softened in its palette Mm. and in its subjects um he, he made a series of works one of which is on the cover of my book um 
that were called after-image paintings where he would look at an, an extant figurative painting of his and then turn from it and paint the after-image of that painting. So they're just these wild kind of abstract paintings that um, go into these holes and kind of become really visceral. Um, and I, th I mean, I think it's, it's probably worth knowing that Juan's partner is a psychoanalyst. I did not know this. Um, 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 something else the two of you have in common. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I guess, um, yeah, the work aesthetically has softened, though recently um, he's been making a lot of works where he's been printing posters um, and particularly like posters that he's been influenced by, like um, South American like movie posters, and stuff, right, right, and then painting over them. Hmm. And at the the art fair recently at the Windsor Hotel, spring eighteen eighty three art fair, he had a like quite a large series of about twenty of these posters, and they're very um, explicit in their in their address to current Australian situations. There was one that was about the Dondale right, 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 right. There was one that was like a, a kind of really ornate Aussie kind of clock counting down that just said menace. Like he's mm -hmm. very kind of um, he's not afraid to be really explicit with sure. those messages in a way that I'm much more hesitant. Yes. Um, I, I seldom put text in my work in that kind of way, in a mm. message kind of way. Um and yeah, but I guess I mean the similarities are um, like we both tend to deal with the figure at a life-sized scale when we mm -hmm. deal with it, um, and we both often work at quite a large scale. Um, I guess I don't know. I think my work I've become more and more concerned with sort of meshing images in with each other in a way that the process of producing them is almost like a mathematical equation where you lay an image down and then you mask another image out on top of it and then you add another image into the mask and mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy like it's sort of producing these different textural layers that interact with each other and undo each other and but make each other at the same time where Davila often paints like in a much more straight up way and he uses oils and you know oils and brushes and he doesn't do too much of like fucking around with masks and that kind of thing where I spend a lot of my time doing this very process driven um, procedures of, of masking and revealing this um, maybe um, my uh, just a superficial misunderstanding on my part but when I when I see um, particularly the developed painting that is on the cover mm -hmm. um, of your book with its 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 evocation of, of holes and so forth. One of the things that it does remind, or, or these these sort of mysterious globular things. One of the th it does remind me of at least an aspect of your work, which is that no matter how um, uh, confrontational the images might be in in somewhere or another and we've we've talked about how um uh shocking or sort of explicitly polemical like um uh, de Villa can be mm. that it seems that you 
both have a deference to almost the evocation of of beauty at some level like I find a lot of your work and his work like extraordinarily beautiful and and you say in the work that um which is a a correct sort of statement of Kant's position that beauty is never something that is a that inheres in a work that it's it's mm. it's something that that comes out in the in the free play of the faculties in aesthetic experience. Yeah. But but it seems to me that both you and De Villa are devoted to doing that, even and especially if if uh, in yeah. you know when when there is a, a a kind of strong message that you want to get across. Can, can I think you... that's definitely the case. I mm. mean, I I find De Villa's handling of paint just stunning. Mm. Like I could mm. never paint in that way. No, it's it's really amazing. Actually, um, yeah. But I think that, yeah, like, obviously you can't sort of go, I'm going to make a beautiful thing and everyone's going to find it beautiful. But I think, you know, you can deal with your own subjective notions of beauty um, and you can create conditions that are perhaps, like, conducive to the possibility of that experience. Mm. Um I think when I was at, when I was an undergraduate, I made a lot of really ugly work because mm-hmm. I was sort of just trying out what I wanted to be doing and mm-hmm. making like bad abstraction and stuff because I just didn't have a language. I didn't have the maturity to kind of develop an abstract language at that age. Um, and I reached a conscious point where I decided that for the work to be aesthetically appealing is a really important weigh in mm-hmm. and that if people are drawn to a surface or like just drawn to the material qualities of a painting then they'll spend more time with it and then they'll start to register the content which is to me that's the passage toward critique you know that the aesthetic experience sort of initiates no um, that that's crucial sorry oh the other thing i was going to say is it's funny that like recently I found like this quite kind of sexual imagery creeping into my work <laughs> in a way that it wasn't a deliberate decision, mm. but it's um it's like I'm moving backwards through like with the influence from Davila into the more sordid kind of <laughs> painting. Yes, yes. Like the one I was working in, in the studio today has like an image of a man masturbating over the national anthem. Right, 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 right. Um, <laughs> So yeah, we'll see where that goes. I kind of find those things like that emerge and it's like, let's just go with this and see what it's going to do. But I suspect no matter, yeah, I mean, if as you approached maybe the earlier Davila Talos of, of kangaroos giving anal liquids to <laughs> Birkenwald, that no matter how, how close you get to that, that you, as your work like um, Davila's will still contain that, that kind of uh, beautiful element and what, what interested me in that is it seems like you know it doesn't seem to me that you're you know obviously you're not interested in beauty for its own sake and you deny you know the existence of that as an objective quality but I wonder mm. if coming back to the sort of Kantian uh, framework of your of your book that when when Kant talks about the, the free play of the faculties we started talking about uh, Greenberg's in excessively juridical notion of of um of of judgment but it mm-hmm. it seems to me that the free play of the faculty is that one of the reasons 
this notion of beauty might speak to you and and to a certain aspiration to towards beauty in your work and in and in de Villa's is the way that that play of the faculties as a free play seems to me ambiguously uh, poised on the threshold between sort of harmony and discord like on the one hand it's harmonious that's hence euphony hence uh, the pleasing effect of it but on the other hand it's about discord like as as i think Deleuze says it's about um not having as you do in the other critiques one faculty legislating over the others in their appropriate sphere and i yeah i mean that seems to me to evoke motifs of decontextualization like like the work of Hannah Johnson lures us in with with harmony and I'm kind of going oh you know it's lovely like all of these and then you know bam kangaroo and analing <laughs> but wait but it's beautiful and then wait but analing is like that ah! and yeah is yeah. that is is that part of your intention or am I just am I just projecting things yeah, on you which of course no, I, I could as a good Kantian I think it's really important like especially if you're if you're dealing with subject matter that people might not be readily amenable to, right. then it can be like a good way to lure them. Mm. Um, I mean, it's also something I find interesting with Kippenberger is that, you know, in another of his paintings, it's like a kind of um, slightly amateur but like decently executed amateurish looking painting of like a scene of the Swiss Alps yeah yeah and then you kind of after a while notice that it's signed Adolf in the corner yes you know yes it's like referring to the fact that that Hitler tried and failed to get into art school yes. at the beginning of his life um but it's not so, a classical painting it's not like the kind of painting Hitler no, actually would have painted right? no like, no not at all mm-hmm. but it's like a it's like a real it's like a really mean kind of yeah like it's a it's like a really cheesy painting that he's and I, I kind of like that Kippenberger uses that like like he doesn't kind of step too far into the realm of beauty he makes things like just appealing enough but then kind of encourages you to judge them poorly yes and then smacks you in the face with yes. like a joke yes that's, that's sort of like a departure from that poor judgment and that's something that like I think I get I'm too like immersed in the realm of of the aesthetic like I don't know if I could make a, an ugly painting mm. and put it out into the world like that like I don't know if I have the right mentality to do <laughs> that but I really respect it sure I bet I, I, I think Maybe you you are similar to uh, Kippenberger and your and um, De Villa insofar as it, it seems to me, and this is what you articulate in the in the book that you have one of the things that all three of you have in common is wanting, despite your different aesthetics, is wanting to sustain that moment of of reflexivity which is accompanied by a a disorientation uh, coming back to can't like the fact that i can't rely on 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 kind of the usual rules of things let alone the familiar the familiar frameworks because i i think even though i also have difficulty imagining you painting you know something something ugly i think you know we were talking about 
beauty potentially being this this lure, like 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 ah, uh, and then I and then I'm faced with the harsh critical content. But I think I just want to interject and say oh, I please. do make ugly things, but I just <laughs> don't tend to let them out into the world. Ah, that's that's incredibly <laughs> interesting. I didn't know that because of your <laughs> because of your tendency to hide these these things, which I only just heard about. Tell tell me about well, that. Why I prefer mean, I think I mean one thing about being a painter that I think is is like a good practice for me as a human is that you have to come to it with a preparedness to fail yes right have to be willing to try things and you're like oh I don't know what <laughs> how this is going to work out you know mm. but you do it and sometimes it just goes like irretrievably wrong and other times it does something unexpected and you might have to retrieve it some way or you might have to change tack right or it might just work and it's you know, you end up producing these things that you're like, I never anticipated that that would come out of my being, but there it is, you know. And so invariably along the way there are paintings that you make and you're just like, oh, you know. <laughs> I've got a bunch of them. I haven't given up on them entirely, but when I have time, I'll, like, pull them out and rework them. Would you ever consider exhibiting them in, in raw form, like a, an exhibition consisting entirely of failures in that sense? Or? Well, maybe, but I feel, I mean, I look at them and I feel that they don't have much to offer. Interesting. And then it's sort of like, it, would it just be arrogant or self-indulgent right. to put them out and be like, oh, look at like how cool I am for <laughs> showing you my failures. <laughs> right, like a, like a, 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 a very, very fake pose of, sorry clearism but a pose of um of kind of contrived vulnerability but contrived yeah. because controlled yeah, exactly. vulnerability yeah, right exactly. right yeah. but uh, yeah i mean that that makes me uh, return to yeah the, the question of the of the role of of beauty in your work of why you wouldn't show these failures and i was i was thinking and yeah i wonder what you think of this that that if beauty is on the one hand a lure, like the one way you could put it is is that it's a lure. It's like, you know, you come for the, you, I get the pleasant, harmonious free play of the faculties, but I stay for these other things that, that raise dissonance uh, mm. um, in the painting. But on the other hand, um, one of the things that I'm most struck by in your work and in the book is the idea that that focus on beauty in the Kantian sense, not as this um, ancient and sort of largely vacuous sort of um, uh, aesthetic concept like the idea that the telos of, of all art is beauty whatever that means right like yeah. but but beauty in the Kantian sense the other the other role it might play in, in your work is it seems to me that it stops the um what could otherwise be the the banality of of critique understood a certain way the way used to artists saying critical remarks in the sense of mm. like particularly about politics and so forth right like to to the extent that 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 gesture can very easily it's like ah oh, you know another painting that says you know this x is bad like donald trump is bad like you know, the u.s yeah, foreign yeah. policy is bad whatever and and that if that the, the it's it's actually the um, the presence of what we'll call for one of better word the, the beauty in in the villa's paintings and your works that tends to wake one linger over that criticality for a moment and also maybe mm. become more reflexive about like make the viewer more reflexive about their response because I think as a viewer you can sometimes look at 
a critical message and you can think oh no 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 like I already think that like I'm a I'm a good yeah, person like who, preaching to the choir yeah yeah I'm part of the choir to which that is being preached to but yeah. it seems to me that, that it's impossible to do that with Kippenberger's work mm. or, or with your work or with de Villa's work it's impossible to position yourself as the virtuous subject who already gets the the message yeah I think de Villa is particularly adept at that at kind of conveying the things that we have a shared sense of shame about as a as a culture I Mm. guess if you could call (laughs) (laughs) Australian society a culture um yeah I mean it's it's interesting with Kippenberger as well like you know I I feel like I selected these very specific paintings from his oeuvre Mm, mm. his greater project was one of art as life and life as art you know he was very gregarious very um, everything just got uptaken into his art Um, and painting was only one of the many things that he did but yeah I I didn't want to kind of engage with that aspect of him in this book I wanted to consider his paintings as paintings why do you think why did you make that dis- decision what, to exclude the other and for the record I don't know anything about the, the other what was the other stuff like? I guess he um, I mean he was very much of a, like a prankster um, huh. and he often made like quite large scale installations and sculptures and things right, right. but he was also known for he was he was like a raging alcoholic. He died of cirrhosis of the liver, uh, uh, yeah, hepatitis. I think mm-hmm. he was in his forties. Wow, um, that's yeah, that's hard drinking in a very sort of condensed period of time. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. he was. Um, you know, he was as social as as that suggests. Right, you know? and he, you know, was involved in like running a nightclub in Berlin, and that right. was part of his work. And you know, there was a catwalk from that club was like in a recent survey show of his at Hamburger Bahnhof and <laughs> okay, right. you know he, and I just kind of was like I, I just wanted to kind of like separate the paintings out from that whole cult of the personality mm. thing and focus on on them as, because I feel like you know his project overall is not concerned with aesthetics as such I mean it's it plays a role but it's not you know, it's like the instances of this aesthetic experience that he operates on are really specific in these paintings. And they're not, um, you know, and, and those paintings from 1983-84 as well, you know, and he went on to make all sorts of different paintings hmm. that are not related. Hmm. Well, he seems... I mean, the justification for you making that separation would seem to come from the fact that he makes a similar separation himself you no know, in in relation to his ever like um would i be right to say it was surely kind of uh at the very least surprising force for a sort of such an avant-garde uh figure to to even paint and you know if, if not was... necessarily in germany interesting interesting because you know though particularly like in this context we tend to receive um, well, at least when I was at art school, received very um, New York centric, yeah, yeah. Um, 
art histories. Right, yes, yes. Um, whereas in Germany, they never disavowed representational painting. Ah, that's so interesting. That's and so interesting. That's one of the reasons that I've always been, that I've always looked to German painters. Right. As, as a sort of resource. Yeah. Because they didn't get mired in abstract expressionism and colour field painting and all of this kind of thing. Yeah. Ah, that's so fascinating. Right. Like the idea you're suggesting, ah, this, this is actually so illuminating for me, that we, that we receive a kind of wig history of, of art like it centered centered on you centered on New York right like you move from blah abstract expressionism through minimalism blah conceptuality at some point you get to installations and and so forth and that's at the peak and that, that was a necessary development in yeah, towards freedom absolutely. that's fascinating yeah whereas in Germany I had no you idea. kind of shift from like you know Anselm Kiefer's like giant brooding um post-war works to Joseph Boy's kind of self mythologizing <laughs> in this incredibly grandiose way to then people like Kippenberger who was one of Boy's students right. kind of trying to lighten the whole thing up again I guess mm. or again or lighten the whole thing <laughs> up at all <laughs> um, do you, and it, it's interesting just because we've been talking about Australia do you, how would do you explain the fact that that New York wig history, as we're calling it, is what is taught in Australian art schools, what you would have been exposed to and what I have a very, very dim knowledge of, sort of third-hand from, from other people who um, went to art schools? I guess it's still just a hangover of this idea of New York as a centre, mm. you know, that the centre of art shifted from Paris sometime during the 40s or something right, to, right. to being in New York. You know, probably when Duchamp moved over. <laughs> sure. Um, and I think it's that simple. I mm. mean, you know, Australia so, has this compulsion to be so outward-looking in certain respects, and which makes sense given that we are the product of a grafted-on culture. You know? Sure. Um, but I guess that's changing, you know. It's not so readily accepted unquestioningly anymore. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But we are obsessed. I mean, I, I think it, it, this topic does connect back to what we were saying about, about Australian um, delusions, especially around the questions of identity and a sort of obsession yeah. with centres and, and margins and not wanting to be on yeah. the margins or on and the, the outer, that the periphery. like Western cultural output is legitimate or something you know whereas now mm. you have like much more of a connection to asia yes in the art world yes of, like the asia pacific triennial in queensland and yeah there's a there's much more awareness of the locality yeah that's fascinating okay helen i'm i'm moving towards closing our conversation but i i want to ask you a few couple more sort of maybe um, out of left field questions just mm -hmm. because we talked about um, just because you mentioned it in relation to De Villa and also um, perhaps in relation to um, uh, your first encounter with uh, Justin Clemens um, um, talking about does uh, psychoanalysis play any, any role in your own sort of thinking or practice on aesthetics um, if it does it's um probably attributable to living with Justin. Right, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I 
not read in-depth um, psychoanalytic thinkers, though I do find them interesting. Mm. Um, but I, I mean, I think it is true that because Justin perceives many things through a Lacanian lens, yes, yes, and like in selected instances of Freudian lens, sure, um, that really has like altered the way that I interpret the world, mm. um, particularly like on social levels, right? Um, and I guess that that would certainly um, cash out in the paintings because they're figurative and they're about setting figures in relation to one another yes and they and particularly dealing with sexuality and kind of diminishing or amplifying sexual potencies of specific figures you know for whatever reason (laughs) you know it's it's definitely in there (laughs) i um sorry i'm very this is a fast question but but who um uh, whose sexual potency have you amplified in in, in paintings? Well, thought, like, I'm probably only my own, to be honest. Interesting, um, interesting. This again is in the pair of works down at Acker. Mm. Um, the one with the gold mine, the goldfield guy. Um, if you look closely, he has this sort of cute little erection poking out the top of his <laughs> trousers, right. um, with a little like. Doop. Like a <laughs> ejaculation spiraling out of it, um, and the painting accompanying that is a very large painting with four figures, four um, like lower torsos of four women sort of poking in from each corner, and a maze made out of drops of menstrual blood. Right. So it's a very right. sort of celebratory, um, very present painting about bleeding yes Um, yes and the figures in that painting are just taken from my own body right um, which is as as much for the sake of expediency as anything else sure sure you know being in the studio originally it was going to just have uteruses uteri um i don't know and then i decided i wanted figures and it was like i can just set the tripod up and put it on a timer and take photos of my own body and just put them straight on the painting yes yes rather than asking for a model or or whatever yeah Yeah, 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 so i mean they're they're me but they're not recognizable as me well well, it wasn't a sort of um you know uh reflections on your own body or sort of so forth that that principally drove that placeholder yeah 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 yeah. it's as in it's more about um uterus menstrual blood and 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 so forth like as against this um what we talked about amplified sexual potency against the diminished potency of this central yeah exactly and it's the painting with this menstrual blood is called history painting right it's (laughs) at that kind of scale that's a very typically male scale i mean painting is still quite a male dominated discipline i would say oh sure Mm. sure um and so in into which this these this kind of uterine history constitutes a, a, a an interruption like a, a provocation a cause of, of discord is, is that what you mean yeah i guess it's just a kind of strident assertion sure um of something that for women is completely commonplace 
but for men is a bit like, ooh. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, you, and it's sort of just like, here it is, deal with it. I mean, there are two tiny men trapped in the maze. <laughs> of petrol, but like failing to deal with it. Right? Yeah, like, two fat little colonial men. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose when I, when I asked about psychoanalysis, I was thinking about um, however uh, explicitly or, or minimally, um, uh, uh, sorry, whether, whether you're explicitly, implicitly, or not very interested in that, um, you know, uh, certainly you do seem interested in, in central psychoanalytic themes around things like what is what is disavowed, particularly in thinking about mm. Australian history, maybe, maybe, maybe in terms of maybe thinking about the, um, even the, uh, gender biases in 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 painting, like in its history and the and the present. These things are disavowed, disavowal, yeah. repression, um, all of these. You know what is what is what is silence? What is um, latent under the manifest and so forth? That yeah. seems to be and different. how do these things return? How you know the modes in which they bubble up? And they're like fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Return of the repressed, and also with your Kantian aesthetics, I, I suppose that you can't. Um, I think one of the things that maybe psychoanalysis shows against its reputation in some quarters is that you can't necessarily just just leap from the manifest content to the latent content in a kind of ripping the mask off way, right? Mm. Like an analyst will yeah. do something more like, you know, won't say again contra a sort of popular Hollywood cliche won't sort of say you'll relate a dream and I'll say ah that's your mother or something <laughs> like that or blah 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 penises blah blah like yeah. instead you'll say um, instead you know uh, I might do something find ways of punctuating your discourse of sort of say why did you suddenly say smother instead of mother or why do you keep using mm. the same word care and yeah there's a there's a kind of there's something there's a kind of disorienting intervention on the at the mm. level of the manifest speech that at least to me maybe as a project but recalls some yeah, of your, your nice. critical practice I don't, I don't yeah know. I like that alright um, Helen uh uh, it's it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast um i'm just uh thinking of whether i will pose a very last question um uh okay my my final question for you is um just given that we are on on philosophy can ruin your life is is um have you been reading any philosophy lately and and does and yeah what is what is your current relationship to philosophy after this these um, moments of disavowal and repression and recovery and and so forth i mean i've been listening to some like cultural theory audiobooks oh my god my no. <laughs> studio, cut the microphone no, no, I, didn't, I, <laughs> I mean i don't i have to confess that i haven't been reading much philosophy lately um i read like bits and pieces um but i my like shameful um confession is that I when I'm in my studio I often listen to audiobooks of novels right um or just things that can be on you know they're on to keep the language half of my brain yes. occupied whilst right. I paint which right. uses the other half of my brain um 
and usually when I get home, I've, I also lately have just been reading fiction to <laughs> fall asleep. So I've, it's, there's a real split for me, and I've spoken to a lot of different artists about this mm. who concur that it's very hard to transition from studio brain into language brain. Right. Um, and because I've spent the last two years basically in the studio full time mm. um, I've been sort of in, in that realm and I've been turning down any requests to write anything it's a long time since I've published any right, writing right. because I've, I've struggled to, to make that jump and that, atten- that is attended by like not reading much theory at that- the same time it's dreadful no not at all no that <laughs> makes sense um, and, and art does not like need philosophy evil sure it's, sure yeah. But, yeah i i mean yeah i i i don't think it's at all necessary for for you to do that like i mean one of the things i think you've demonstrated is that is that painting actually is its own um um critical practice you've you've made me think about all kinds of odd analogies between painting and and, and philosophy among among other things and um and yeah it's been it's been lovely talking to you um thank you so much helen i hope you come back on the show another time we will we will have yeah we will have another discussion i've got crazy ideas to have panel discussions (laughs) but also redux like a kind of um, but also a kind of yeah we can do a sort of seven up like how much more ruined are people's lives (laughs) (laughs) like like seven years later or something like that (laughs) i'll be dead and replaced with an ai or something like that all right thank you very much thanks (laughs)